right, you guys can uh, turn with me to today's uh, passage. It is in the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Just kidding, that's not a real book in the Bible. (laughs) Just kidding, it is a real book. But you believed me when I said it wasn't, okay? It's right after Habakkuk, which really clears things up for everyone, right? All right, which is basically an introduction to the book of Zephaniah, okay? Very obscure. Hardly anyone knows about this book, right? It's not one that gets a a lot of attention. Not a lot of people going to Zephaniah for their life verse, okay? Um, But Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets, one of the 12 minor prophets. And uh, historically, the church turns to this book at this time of year. Uh, We do turn to this book. There's a specific prophecy in chapter 3 of Zephaniah that we're going to be looking at today. And historically, the church comes back to this time and time again uh, to to grasp what the promise was given to Israel about the arrival of the Messiah, who Jesus was going, going to be, what he was going to accomplish. But also, this book challenges us to look forward again to the return of Christ. Not just to the first coming of Jesus and the first advent of Jesus, his arrival as the Messiah at Christmas that we celebrate, but also to look forward to the return, to the coming of Jesus again. And Christmas is that promise for us that everything that God has promised, he has come through on. And we can continue to trust that for the future. So today we're going to be looking uh, at this book, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. And we're going to go through verse 17. And today we're going to do this like just old school Bible study style. All right. We're going to go through just piece by piece and uh, pull out some important parts that we see in there and stop at key phrases and key words uh, as we move through this passage together. Let's pray. Jesus, as we open up your word today, as we get into this, as we dive into what you have to say to us, we pray that you would just speak really clearly to us. We pray that you would just quiet everything else, all of the distraction going on in our minds, the things that we're, the burdens that we're carrying in here. The things that are pulling at us. And I pray you would just speak directly and clearly to us today. This is your word. We trust you to teach it to us. And to really root us in it. Change us today. Be lifted up and draw us to yourself. See your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start with verse 9 and we're just going to be moving through this together. All right. So here's what it says in verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. We're going to pause right there first. Okay, that that phrase that that it begins with that the Lord is going to purify the lips of the people. There's a lot of callback happening in in that phrase. Okay, Uh, first of all, for us last week it's a reflection of where we were last week in the prophet Malachi, another very famous book of the Bible, all right? The prophet Malachi and this prophecy of the refiner's fire. 
that the the refiner's fire was coming. But the good news that this is not the kind of fire that destroys us, but instead the kind of fire that transforms us. That imagery of a refiner's fire so that when we're passing through that, what's going to emerge is the purest gold. And so once again, we get this same kind of callback of this purifying process that happens that Jesus has come to give. Right. We always think about that in terms of this time of year that Jesus has come as this gift and Jesus has come to give. But also we're told over and over again, Jesus hasn't just come to give. He's also come to take away. He's come to take away. And there's this purifying process of walking in relationship with him, this refining process in which we're reshaped into his likeness. He came to give his life and to take away our sin. He came to give his holiness and his love and his transformation and to heal our brokenness. Jesus is a gift. He's come to give, but he's also come to. To take away and there's a purifying and a transforming process that happens when we come into contact with him. It's also an echo back to uh, the book of Isaiah. We get the calling of Isaiah and Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet. And this heavenly being takes like the coal from the altar and purifies his lips. Right. And the flame of this purifying power on Isaiah's lips again not to destroy him he was he assumed he was about to die that he was going to be destroyed by the holiness of God but instead when he came in contact with it instead of being destroyed he was transformed he was made new we see this all throughout the life of Jesus as well the thought process in that day and the assumption the status quo of that day is this that my whatever impurity I have is contagious at the touch Right. If I am impure in any way, then that impurity passes to you if you place your hand on me, if you touch me in any way. And so there's a class of people that literally become untouchable in that culture and in that time. And where does Jesus go when he shows up directly to the untouchable people? Right. And it's so powerful. It's so beautiful. And it's his touch that ends up transforming them. The thought process was that the impurity overpowers the purity and is trans is transferred. And that's what's contagious. But instead, Jesus says, no, my holiness and my love is what is contagious. And when I place my hand on you at the touch, you are transformed. It's what happens when we become followers of Jesus. We're made new. We're completely transformed at the touch of Jesus, this purification that is happening. The next piece, I love that phrase, that they will stand shoulder to shoulder. They will stand shoulder to shoulder. This is a beautiful glimpse, an example of what the church is supposed to be. That is, we're drawn into relationship with Jesus. As we're drawn into closer relationship with him, we're also drawn into closer relationship with each other. Jesus says the entire the, the entire scope of the scripture hangs on the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. As we go deeper in relationship with Jesus, we're drawn deeper into relationship with each other. And we become these this people who stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. I love Jason's idea and, and his heart in Um, blessing Kevin and Allison and their kids, Emma and Nathan, and just being a a blessing to them. It's so, it's beautiful. And that's what it looks like, standing shoulder to shoulder. He's been there. 
He's been there, and he experienced the church coming around him. And now he's saying, now I want to be there for them in the same way that they were there for me. The people of Jesus standing shoulder to shoulder were formed into a family with each other. It's beautiful. Uh, on our, our, our Bible study that we have on Tuesday nights at, at Moe's, after Bible study this, this Tuesday night, it was a bitterly cold night on Tuesday. And it was incredible for me to overhear some people who recently did not have a place to stay, who did not have a place to be, asking around and making sure that their friends had a place to be on that night, to make sure that nobody was left out, literally left out in the cold, but taking care of each other. It was beautiful. It was moving to see that shoulder to shoulder. We are in this together. He's forging a family We've talked repeatedly about that biblical truth, the gospel truth, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we're reminded that this is not for us alone. We are not alone. We are, we are brought together and, and, and bonded together in this relationship through the love of Jesus Christ, shoulder to shoulder, shoulder to shoulder. You are not alone as it keeps moving on here's what it says after that from beyond the rivers of Cush my worshipers that's just fun to say all right from beyond the rivers of Cush my worshipers my scattered people will bring me offerings and this imagery of of the Messiah bringing the people back together these people that have been scattered later on a few verses later it talks about the remnant of Israel The remnant of Israel, these people that have been broken apart, have been scattered apart, now being brought together. That word Cush, this is imagery, all right? This isn't just like a literal place, but it's imagery to describe like the furthest boundaries that you can think of, all right? Like the furthest away place that you can imagine. That's kind of the code term there that would have been tossed around in those days from beyond Cush, right? You're brought back together from the furthest places that the people had been scattered. They are brought home. Once again, a reminder that we are not alone. We are not alone. This movement of Christianity goes so far beyond any of the structures, right? Any of the institutions of it. It has always been a grassroots people movement it has always been thriving not just in religious structures but in the hearts and souls of real people and that is not something that you can stomp out you simply cannot stomp it out throughout the history of christianity people have tried to put an end to it they've tried to put it to death over and over again through persecution through other things through outlawing it all all kinds of approaches to try to put an end to it but it simply cannot be done the remnant is scattered to the ends of the earth the remnant is scattered to the ends of the earth it can't be done Uh, around the year uh, 100 a.d in the roman empire there were as few as twenty-five thousand christians on 100 AD. So in that time period, since the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity had spread to become about 25,000 people. During that time, there was intense persecution against Christianity. People literally being put to death 
for being a follower of Jesus. The same power structures that put Jesus to death now hunting down and putting to death people who were following him and walking in the way of Jesus. That should have killed it. That was the plan, right? To put it in. That was the strategy to kill it and to snuff out the flame. But it simply did not work. It simply did not work. Christianity continued to spread until in the year 310 A.D., it had gone from 25,000 people to 20 million people who were, who were now followers of Jesus, transforming the Roman Empire itself, transforming the Roman Empire itself. And then it came up against another difficulty, not just by being persecuted by the government, but then by becoming entangled with the government. That's also extremely dangerous for Christianity. When you mix Christianity and politics, you get politics. We've got to be extremely careful in that. And we see that that's exactly what happened in Rome. And it moved from this grassroots movement that was transforming the culture to this institution that looked like it was rotting from the inside. But you simply cannot snuff it out. There was always the remnant still alive, still moving, that grassroots movement. Same thing happened in China during the Cultural Revolution when it became illegal to be a Christian. At that point, there were about two million Christians in China. And the church, through intense persecution, was forced underground. The government not only made it illegal to be Christian, they they seized the property of all of the churches They uh, violently took out, killed the top tier leadership. And then the second and third tier of leadership, they either imprisoned or put to death. They were stomping it out. They were snuffing it out, eradicating China of all religion. The church was forced underground with about two million Christians. Finally, when missionaries, when they started to let missionaries back in, when they started to ease up on that and it became legal again to to profess Christianity, missionaries started to come back in. They assumed they would find a decimated church that they were going to have to rebuild from scratch. You know what they found? They found an underground church network and grassroots movement of people that had gone from two million Christians before persecution landed on them they had grown to 60 million, to 60 million, because you cannot snuff this out. You can't stop it. You cannot stop it. You can't put out that flame. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There is a remnant, and they are scattered across the world, and we are connected to them. We are connected to them through the blood of Jesus Christ and through this grassroots movement of Jesus' people. I love that. As it goes on, here's something else that says in chapter 12. Well, let me, let me, I mean, verse 12. Let me start with verse 11, actually. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all of the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove this from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. That's good alliteration right there. <laughs> haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord, a remnant of Israel who would do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. I love that distinction there between the haughty, between those who are filled with this spiritual pride 
and what it describes as the meek and the humble. The meek and the humble. Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for those who were caught up in their own spiritual pride. Over and over again, we see him going to the people who were the outcasts because of their sin. They were deemed sinners and untouchable and pushed to the edges of society. And that's exactly who Jesus went to. And instead, he turns around and his harshest criticism is for the religious elite. Those who were filled with spiritual pride. They had all of the answers, but they had somehow lost the mystery along the way. And those are the ones who receive Jesus' most pointed critique and challenge. He says, I'm going to remove the pride. And I'm going to replace it with those who are humble and meek. Humble and meek. It's beautiful. That's a description of how Jesus comes himself, right? It's a description that the king himself steps into our story. When you see that that imagery uh, that's wrapped around the nativity scene and just the humility of Jesus to be born into that kind of environment, this peasant family that Jesus is born into. We're supposed to believe as we read through the Gospels, we're supposed to believe that this peasant somehow becomes a king, right? And that's hard to believe, okay? That's, it makes a great fairy tale. But when you really look at it, like how does a peasant become a king? There's only one way. If the king first becomes a peasant. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus does. The one who is full of all of the might and all of the power humbles himself, empties himself of that. And a humility, humble and meek comes to us in that way. It's no mistake that Jesus continually comes back to that. It's no mistake that anywhere you find the story of Jesus told, these words continue to be attached to who he is and to how he lived, humble and meek. It's no mistake that right there in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about that and he calls us into meekness and into humility. And I think that perhaps the most radical thing that a person can do in our world today is to live with humility and meekness. It's one of the most radical things you can do. I think one of the most radical things we can do in our world today is to actually live the Sermon on the Mount. Empowered by the grace of Jesus. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Living through us. Perhaps the most sincere way that we could celebrate Christmas is to live in the way that this baby came to establish. It would be so countercultural if we would do that. It'd be so countercultural. Perhaps the most courageous act of belief in Jesus is to actually believe Jesus. You know what I mean by that? We would say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but do we believe him? I'm not talking about believing in him as like a concept. I'm saying believing what he said and believing the words that he spoke and taking his words and his actions at face value and assuming that he really meant that when he said it. Do you believe Jesus to take his words and his actions at that face value? The Sermon on the Mount is not poetry. The Sermon on the Mount is prophecy. The Sermon on the Mount is not rhetoric. It's revolution. And that's what he calls us into it would be radically countercultural to live according to that today. 
to live as the humble and meek followers of the humble and meek King Jesus. As it moves into this last section here, verses 14 through 17. I love this. This is so beautiful. Here's what it says. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Beautiful. Sing, O daughter of Zion, is how it begins. And then it ends with this imagery of the Lord actually singing over us. So powerful. It's so powerful. This time of year it is completely tied up in singing, isn't it? Like, like whatever, what other season of the year has its own soundtrack? You know, and with people that can't wait to start playing it. October, start it up. All right? But, but this season is full of music, right? It's full of music. There's the songs that we associate just with this time of year. And that's incredibly fitting because it's always been that way. It's always been that way. Read the story of the arrival of Jesus. The first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke read like a hymnal, right? There's just songs bursting out everywhere. It's like Broadway or something, all right? But it's like in, in chapter 1, we get the, the song of, of Zechariah, who, who sings in response to the birth of his son, John the Baptist, when his mouth is opened again. The first thing out of his mouth is a song. We get the song of Mary when it's confirmed in her heart that what the angel has told her is true. That the most high God is going to be born through her. The son of the most high born through her. And what's her response? It's this beautiful song called the Magnificat that she sings. It's powerful. You should read it. It's it's really pretty revolutionary too. It might actually uh, disturb you a little bit, but you should read that. Mary bursts into song. And then, of course, we have the angels, the choir of angels that fill the sky, singing over the birth of Jesus. Song after song after song attached to this season and the arrival of Jesus. As he draws near, the world is full of singing. The world is full of singing. It gets me to thinking about, like, what is the worth of a song? What is a song? Like, why do we do that? Songs are not essential. You don't need songs, right? They're really not very practical, are they? They're not essential, but instead they're extravagant. They're like the excess of the overflow of the heart. It's like when you can't find the words to say what you want to say to explain it, it's like it's got to come out in poetry and in melody. That's what a song is about and that's what a song is for it's an act of extravagance in some ways it's like a senseless act of beauty which is exactly what christmas is this act of beauty that just doesn't even make sense to us sometimes there's no way to capture what's in your heart so you've got to express it 
through a song. Sometimes you've got to raise your voice and you've got to raise your hands because that's the only way to communicate it. And that's what's happening here. Sing, O daughter of Zion. And what is happening? And the Lord is singing over us in his joy over us, in his love over us, pouring out his extravagant mercy, a God who sings over us in delight. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Today, uh, Amy and her family uh, lit the, the joy candle for us. And that just captures it. This is what a song does, is it captures our joy and it translates it for us because we don't have the words to communicate it. It's beautiful. One of my favorite uh, poets and writers is an old man named Wendell Berry uh, who's a farmer and a poet at the same time, which is about the best combination you can have, I think. But he has this poem that has these lines in it that captures it so well. He says, so friends, every day do something that won't compute. Be joyful, even though you've considered all the facts. Be joyful, even though you've considered all the facts. I think that's what this remnant of Christianity is. This joyful people in the midst of the darkness, we keep lighting one spark at a time, pushing the darkness back. That's what it is. That's what it is, the joy of the Lord. One of our favorite songs around this time of year is Joy to the World, right? It's one of the first carols that comes off the top of your mind when you're thinking uh, about Christmas. The guy who wrote that uh, Christmas carol was, was a man named Isaac Watts. He's a prolific hymn writer, wrote 750 hymns. And to, to this day, uh, some of the most famous hymns that we sing came from his but he wasn't always a songwriter. When he was young, he would complain to his dad about how much he hated the music at church. <laughs> he hated it. He said, it's too boring. The people don't sing it like they mean it. And all of this, he's like, the melody is just, you can't even engage with it. And he hated it. And he would complain about it over and over again until his dad finally got tired of listening to it and said to him, then write your own songs. If you don't like the music that is playing, then write something better. And that's exactly what he did. Ended up writing 750 hymns. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> and Joy to the World is one of those hymns that comes out of that. I'm so glad he did. He wrote a better song. He didn't like the music he was hearing, so he wrote a better song. That's a challenge for us today. That's a challenge for every single one of us. You don't like the way the world is right now? Then write a better song. You don't like what you're hearing? You don't like what you're seeing? You don't like what is swirling around you? Then write something better. Zephaniah challenges every one of us in response to what the Lord has done, in response to the Lord singing over us, join in the song. Start singing with him. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Sing from the depths of your heart. Write a better song. I want to challenge each one of you with that today. What is it about the world around you that is causing you angst? What is it that you look at and you say, I don't like the way this is going. I don't like this. I don't like what I'm seeing. My heart breaks over this. I'm angry over this. Then write a better song. 
Write a better song. Join in it. The Lord is singing over you and he's inviting you into this song. What verse are you going to contribute to it? What's your response going to be? We're going to share in communion today as we close out. And this act of joy of Jesus sacrificing himself for the joy set before him, it says in the scriptures. He went to the cross. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, celebrating the Passover feast, took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. Poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste of it, remember what I have done for you.